Klima is a new series offering insights and thought leadership perspectives brought to you by IGS, the experts in agritech and smart space solutions. Our theme for this edition focuses on the supply chain of the future, the new look localised farm to fork. We are joined by one of our Series A investors, S2G, to discuss how supply chains are evolving and why. What will this mean for growers, wholesalers, food manufacturers, caterers, retailers and consumers? Is there the right levels of demand and how can they be delivered? And how are technology, food production methods, scientific discovery and consumer attitudes really advancing to deliver these new emerging models? Today, I'm joined by Sanjeev Krishnan, Managing Director and CIO at Seeds to Growth Ventures, or S2G, um, in Chicago. Welcome, Sanjeev. Thanks, Kate. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have you taking part in our Klima series. Um, I wondered before we start, Sanjeev, if you would be able to share a bit of background to S2G for our audience. Great. No, I would love to. So we're a food and ag venture fund. We invest across the value chain. So ag tech, food tech, supply chain tech. We invest in processors, brands, and restaurant retail concepts. So the entire sort of value chain of of the food system is available to us to invest. We have over 45 companies in our portfolio. We're also a multi-stage firm. So seed stage, venture stage, growth stage. Our view is, is this sector is very much a marathon as opposed to a sprint. And so we want to be able to support companies throughout you know, their life cycle. Um, we're based in Chicago and have an outpost in San Francisco, we're about 15 people. Um, we have an investment team and an emerging platforms team that helps companies with corporate development connections, marketing and influencing, uh, talent uh, and, and data science and a number of other sort of toolkits that we try to offer our portfolio companies. Excellent. Very broad scope, but... Um lots of exciting opportunities and a really exciting part of the sort of global market to be in and thanks so much for that that background and so today the area particularly i'd like to talk to you about is the is supply chain and the, the concept of a sort of new look farm to fork supply chain what that really means and how achievable how achievable it is um we will discuss, hopefully, which technologies and innovations you think are going to have the greatest impacts and how supply chains might evolve globally, locally also, and, and the impacts that consumer decisions, choices and perception will have on these. So if I just um, kick off, um, Sanjeev, a new look farm to fork supply chain, for example, an urban crop or livestock farm, uh, straight to a retail restaurant or caterer. How realistic do you think this is? I mean, I think it's going to be increasingly um, uh, an emerging trend um, because I think what, what's happening is we've, we've had a siloed supply chain where every stakeholder doesn't really know fully what happens after they, um, they participate in whatever market they do, whether you're a producer or a farmer or whether you're, you're, you're producing livestock or produce or anything. And I think that that um, supply chain, you know, can, can collapses quite a bit for a couple of reasons. One, um, I think COVID-19 um, accelerates the channel adoption of e-grocery, particularly in the U.S. and probably in other parts of the world as well. As more and more, as this channel gets digitized, I think 
um, buyer, traditional producers and consumers will be increasingly um, disintermediated um, because uh, you know of, of, of the fact that everyone's getting trained right now on ordering their food, you know, um, on their phone, which is what I just did. I ordered my groceries just now, and I probably didn't do that even someone that like that's in this industry mm -hmm. uh, three or four months ago. And so as, as more and more that happens, um, you know, that's going to create more demand to, for disintermediation. The other one I think is just traceability. Um, you know, grocers, food service, they want shorter supply chains, not longer supply chains. So if, you know, an average produce changes hands eight to you know 12 times, depending on where it's produced in the world, they want that to be three or four. Um, and I think that's going to cause just because, you know, to have a more resilient system, I think is the view that you have to have a shorter system. Um, the third thing I think is consumers. I think they increasingly know where their food comes from, how it was produced, um, and 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 understand that you know there's been a lot of data that shows that if you kind of put the farmer or the producer on effectively the cereal box for the butter, you actually have an increase in sales and market share. So I think this is starting to resonate with you know, CPG and other firms that, that, you know, their, their ability to win market share is actually dependent on their ability to tell the consumer where it came from. Excellent. I think, well, that particularly is an area, the, that consumer side of it that we will discuss a bit more later on. You talked about shortening the supply chain and moving from maybe eight stages to sort of three or four. The, the S2G proposition is that you invest from soil to shelf and maybe that soil to shelf will get shorter. But where do you see gaps in the market at the moment in this farm to fork supply chain? And so farmers that kind of grow traditional commodities are going to see that either they have to scale their business or they need to look at other things that are more differentiated crops that add value to their profit and cash flows. And that's going to create enormous opportunity for startups that provide new seeds, that provide, you know, uh, new technologies that are, that allow farmers to make more money, um, mm. whether for their for productivity or for, for differentiated sort of, you know, biomass, if you will, i.e. food. So I think that is a, that is an enormous opportunity, decommodification, but can you offer deflation with that? The second is, is I think, um, the gap I see is digitalization. Agriculture and food are the, you know, bottom three on digitalization. Ironically, the, the, the bottom three have huge, you know, telemedicine now, it, you know, Cleveland Clinic went from three or 4% to like over 50% telemedicine. Wow. Um, you know, Harvard went from not having to do any tele, you know, education to doing all teleeducation. Um, and that we think ag and food is, is similar, that the role of digitalization is going to be enormous. And it is an industry that is going to come into the 21st century when it comes to, you know, um, digitally getting off Excel spreadsheets and getting on the cloud. The, the third is really, um, and I think David at IGS frames this really well, um, is we're going from globalization to localization. Not in everywhere. There's, you know, there's some things you can't localize, but I think the future of globalization is also under question. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I was sort of a child of globalization, and, and I and I feel like it's never been more challenged today. And I think. Localizations for supply chain resiliency um, and, and for better shrink, better shelf life stability, a number of other things that in addition to 
normal sort of drivers of localization, COVID prize that. Before the gap I see in the market, and this may be more a US phenomenon than, than others, is really food as medicine. You know, we've got a system that's enormously good at producing cheap calories. Um, there's some externalities that come with that, particularly in our healthcare system. And so we think about food as medicine, food care, food immunity, whatever sort of buzzwords you want to attach to it. But we think there's a huge future in, in sort of medical foods. And I think not, these are not all exclusive. There's some that you know pair both. I think there's deep commodification could be married with medical food innovations and digitalization can be married with localization. So these are not exclusive themes, um, but, but I think these four gaps I see in the market, and, and it's not that I don't see startups being able to, it's just more how do they penetrate the marketplace? How do they increase market share? Um, that's where I see more of the challenge. Now, that's really interesting. And particularly to think about how rapidly digitalization has impacted certain sectors or had to impact certain sectors like healthcare and education. And, and very exciting to see what that will mean in agri-food. You, you touched on, on this point of you know, localization replacing globalization. I'm interested to know, this is, I suppose the extent to which you see that happening around the world. Do you think? I mean, do you think it will be more specific in certain geographies, or do you think it will that, that localization of, of supply chain is going is, is going to become prevalent everywhere? I think the way that we we think about it is one is food security um, and self reliance. Who know, I think we're still in the fog of war of this pandemic. You know. Um, mm-hmm. There'll be second waves, third waves, fourth waves, fifth waves. Hopefully each one is a smaller cosine, if you will. Hopefully. <laughs> um, my hope, we're, we're, I mean, by nature, we're short term. So, but, but I do think this, this uh, hopefully has awakened the need for self-reliance increasingly. Um, and I think that's when localization really helps. Now, when two people talk about, you know, sort of self-reliance and resilience, often that says that comes at a cost. And who bears that cost? Does government pay for that? Um, do consumers pay for that? Our view is innovation can finance a lot of that um, because these, in, these innovations actually are cost competitive with importing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, they'll, and there'll be some new form factors that, that you know, will provide you know, diff, you know, choice, um, like you know, in the meat sector, cell-based meat. We think is going to be a part of the equation and it's produced locally and, and it's you know it's not it's as much short of supply chain um obviously there's some things that, that 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 industry still needs to you know solve before it becomes commercial but it's things like that that i think um can both provide self-reliance in terms of calories and nutrition to your population as well um as provide some security of supply um, and, and, and in a way that's affordable. So I, I do think that it'll be global in phenomenon just because, you know, what we can't have is suddenly the food system becomes a weapon for, for you know, um, in, in sort of global geopolitics. Mm-hmm. That won't, I don't think will be tolerated. I think, I think that will lead to more acceleration of adoption of some of these new technologies. Okay, interesting. And and are there any particular technologies, innovations, or even methods of production that you believe will generate a greater impact um, as we look to deliver these 
localized or, or self-reliant supply chains? You know, in the protein sector, I think, you know, we're, we have an all above strategy with animal, plant, and cell-based. Obviously, uh, plant and cell-based become, become much more um, agile, you know, just because um, your, your capability to do just, you know, just in time and just in case. You can do both <laughs> with, mm-hmm. with, 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 with both those modalities. Um, I think, you know, we believe in, in vertical and indoor. Um, That's good to in hear. The produce, <laughs> in the produce sector. Uh, and obviously we're, we're big fans of the work IGS is doing. And, and, and think that's going to be, um, but both the protein and the produce space and why we like, you know, what IGS is doing is, is really about affordability. It's really about the ability to do this in a way that's labor efficient, cost efficient, and produces diversity of choice for the con- consumer. And so, you know, I think that's, that's going to have to be the North Star. Uh, and we'll see, you know, who is able to do it in, in the medium to long term, in our view. But obviously, you know, we've, we've, been very, we've looked at about 100 of these things and invested in, in only two. I just is one of them in the produce space. And and we've looked at, you know, probably 50 to 100 in the plant-based space and, and invested in a handful. So we're trying to have a portfolio, but at the same time, you know, be pretty discerning about which bets we make. Excellent. Well, that, that's that's really interesting and, and, and very positive from an IGS perspective as well, certainly. Um, You've talked about COVID-19. Obviously, it's pretty hard to avoid talking or thinking about it at the moment. But serious concerns have have arisen around food security, but also food safety um, during this pandemic. And how do you see these, the impacts of the pandemic impacting supply chains in the short and longer terms? I think in, in similar to like, I was watching a documentary last night about um, COVID-19 and diagnostic testing. And like in South Korea, within, when they had four patients, they had got the top 20 corporates together and said, we need to have testing ubiquitous in the country and to understand from a data perspective, you know, everything that's going on. Just quite remarkable, mm-hmm. um, particularly yeah. from the U.S. context. One of the things that this this whole um, crisis revealed was just a lack of data mm-hmm. across the supply chain. And so you went some grocers in the U.S. that had 30 days of inventory in their you know just distribution center go to four days, and some of that was you know hoarding, um, you know that, that that happened, but you you saw a real fragility in the lack of data. Mm-hmm. And understanding the whole supply chain, um, which I go back to, that's one of the reasons I think second order, third order supply chains are going to be scrutinized. I have a fairly cynical or skeptical view of human nature, so I don't know how long that lasts, but, but I'm hoping <laughs> it lasts long enough that at least it gets um, firms like IGS, you know, a, a tailwind. Two, um, I think is, is labor. You know, I think particularly in the U.S., you know, the fact that we are reliant on on this labor that was doing very heroic things during this crisis. They were working so other people could eat. But, you know, obviously a lot of them have, you know, in particularly in the meat sector have come under enormous pressure and, you know, many have gotten um, COVID-19. 
and in the produce space as well. And that's, this is not going to stop, um, in my opinion. These are going to be, you know, what nursing homes are to real estate. These sort of firms are going to be to this just because it's going to be just tightly packed indoor facilities. So you just have to be very careful how you think about that. So I think, you know, the fragility of labor is, and then the third is really, you know, I think geopolitics. I mean, we were, you know, to build our food system, we're relying on global trade. And I think in the UK in particular, um, yeah. I've read something, and this is probably not going to be true, but London has X amount of days of inventory and food. And if there's a, like a, like a, you know, some sort of like global trade disruption that was more fundamental, that's going to hit certain countries harder than others um so i think every country needs to understand the geopolitical relationship and the food nationalism that could occur mm -hmm. um and how are they hedged enough for their you know for their citizens yeah i i mean i think that's really interesting I, not that we're focusing specifically on the uk obviously but i think um it's been very interesting looking at supply chains and um in terms of the context of, of covid19 but also the, the um, prospect of Brexit as well. So that is really requiring a greater sort of introspection in terms of how food supplies are, are managed within this country and the sort of the relationships, you know, once we are fully out of the European Union. But yes, that's not a discussion for today, I don't think. But um, but yeah, I, I, that's I'm over some wine, I think. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Or Scotch. Uh, well, I am in Scotland, so you, know, you never know. Um, I'm interested, Sanjeev, though, to look a little bit more at the, the consumer side of things. This potentially predicted move to greater levels of um, localization and, and new new models of supply chain. I'm interested to know how important you think consumer understanding of where their food is coming from will be and, and how that will impact on demand for, for newer methods to be deployed. A couple of things. This channel digitalization is really doesn't seem very, uh, not very compelling, but it's it's incredibly important and incredibly compelling. If you look at the last 25 years, agnostic to industry, people like me, you know, talk a lot disruption a lot. We define it as changes in market share. The biggest, um, with with the biggest R coefficient, the biggest correlation to changes in market share is when that channel got digitized. It happened in video at Netflix, music with Spotify, even like consumer batteries with Amazon. And there's a, there's a, there's a graveyard of companies that, that got disrupted because mm -hmm. of when the channel got digitized. That is the, that is what COVID-19 I think has done. And I think it, it, it is, that is not a, that is not a, that is a, that's a trend that is growing and going to stay. Um, when that happens, it, it, it democratizes, I think, buyers and sellers, producers and consumers, brings them closer together, mm -hmm. um, gives them choice, gives them customization, um, and gives them access in, in really fundamental ways. We have 10 brands in our portfolio. Almost every single one, if, not, if they hadn't done it already, have built a direct-to-consumer business as a result of COVID. And so that is, you know, the consumer is going to have more choice. Now, in the, in the near term, we, had, we did some hoarding around the center store, you know, traditional shelf-stable goods. That, I think, is important. But I think, you know, medium to long term, that will change. So I think that the challenge is very critical. The second thing that I think is extremely critical is mortality rates of COVID-19. I think there'll be New England Journal of Medicine articles or, or other you know, credible articles about comorbidities 
and who died and who didn't. And I think there'll be in the U.S. anyway, there'll be a fair amount that could have been prevented with a better food system mm-hmm. or on obesity or on diabetes on so many things. And I think healthier food like produce um, and produce, it's differentiated. You know, some of the things that I just is working on in terms of the, the, the biodiversity of what can be grown in, in the vertical space. Um, I think it's going to be very compelling for consumers just because this is no longer some distant issue. This is about your own immunity and your ability to just survive. Who knows when we'll get the vaccine? You know, a lot of our food system has been based on logistics. Mm-hmm. You know, our genetics system is based on logistics. And vertical farming allows you to compress that logistics, you know, from miles to thousands of miles or, or kilometers to you know, thousands of kilometers. Um, and, and I think you can then breed for and, and produce, not for logistics purposes, but for like flavor and nutrition and other things. And I think that is going to be really good for the consumer in terms of, you know, we've, we've, we have a boring food system, at least in the U.S. we do. <laughs> and we're about to have, a, in my opinion, a, a golden age where things that, you know, you historically have not been able to eat before because it just didn't make logistics sense, suddenly makes logistics sense. Okay, that's really interesting. I mean, you talk about manipulating the way plants are being grown and to make them more nutritious and and healthier, I suppose. Do you think that, that there are concerns that this is perceived, and there have been, you know, there's been claims around this before, you know, the term sort of Frankenstein food or concerns about GM could impact consumer perceptions on, you know, controlled agriculture farming, vertical farming, indoor farming? Yeah, no, it's a really important point. I think the benefit is um, part of why I think GM failed is there wasn't enough transparency, you know, and the quality or benefits didn't accrue to the consumer directly it may have been some indirect cost savings that occurred but not directly and so as a result you know and and there was some business model and and pr headline risk that would just you know could have been managed better in my opinion Mm -hmm. um i think you know what's exciting about vertical farming and indoor is a you can use you know germplasm that has been in existence for you know lot for, for for you know decades if not longer and it didn't it got it effectively got uh, um, selected out of the system because of logistics reasons it couldn't survive the trip from California to Boston so you actually I, I think you know you can you can take the natural diversity of the world and actually grow it you know um, closer to the demand center closer to population centers Two, what vertical farming in particular allows you to do is you can effectively, you know, literally, you know, see your, you know, food grow. Um, and it's pretty contained and it allows for a trust but verify, you know, the verification is a video, right, of your food. Yeah, yeah, you um, can see it <laughs> literally yeah, all, and, all the time. And so uh, I think, you know, you, you really can understand it. Um, and, and so I think it's it's very good to be aware of it, but but I think it's to me it's the education process it is something that's very easily do it's much easier doable than in other sectors. No, really interesting. I mean, absolutely to see how this 
progresses certainly and and hopefully from an igs perspective be a you know positive influence in that development but really interesting to hear your thoughts on it do you see optimum food supply chain models emerging in um, regions or countries that could potentially be replicated elsewhere? I think I think there's there's a lot of models out there. Each country is going to have to choose whatever works for them. But I think it's going to be things that are more sustainable, more decentralized, differentiated but deflationary, and um, in my opinion you know, more digitized and, and, and by differentiate, I mean, healthy, flavorful, you know, com, you know, new novel sort of choices. And so I, I think each one will, will, will choose it in terms of what's going on. I think it's, it's early days. I mean, Singapore is doing very exciting things. Mm-hmm. The Middle East is looking at a number of things. I think in the U S the consumer has been leading sort of a, a food revolution here. Um, that looks perhaps different than what, happens in Singapore in terms of how the millennials and Gen Z are voting with their pocketbook. But I think if you think about the broad secular trends of the 21st century, you, you have demographic changes in the developed world and developing that are massive and different. You've got, um, I think, cultural changes and economic changes that are very new, you know, particularly, you know, social media and supply chains or something that I'm very fascinated by. You know, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a gentleman that told us, um, the phone eats first. You know, <laughs> everyone takes a picture of their food. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. And then, and the, and, and, I love that. Yeah, and then the third is really, you know, food is, you know, biomass, right? You've never had greater innovation in the biology, chemistry, physics, and data science of food production than you have now. And, and I'm hopeful that, that those provide both affordable, but more nutritious and more sustainable and more healthy and more flavorful, very important flavor mm-hmm. um, choices for the consumer. And we can kind of reinvent this post-World War II food system that you know, we've been accustomed to and, and really not have you know, some of these false choices that are presented sometimes in, in, the, in the ether around food security and you know, nutrition, affordability, flavor, and, and, other, and other things. Better food, I say hallelujah to that. Sounds, you know, <laughs> absolutely. Um, flavor, I'm with you. Utterly essential. Sanjeev, I realize the day in Chicago is only just beginning for you. So we'll leave our conversation there. I, I'm really grateful to you for your time. Um, it was most interesting to hear more on your thoughts. At what, what I think can only be said as a, a time of evolution and an exciting change in the agri-food sector. Hopefully, we can come back and talk with you again further on in our Klima series. But for today, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me, Kate. Thanks very much, Sanjeev. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Klima, the insights and thought leadership podcast from IGS. If you would like to receive email notifications when we add new content to Klima, please go to www.igsklima.io to sign up. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do like or share. And to find out more information about IGS, go to www.intelligentgrowthsolutions.com.